0: Today, I am chatting with Nicola Harrison about The Showgirl. Born and raised in England, she moved with her family to Southern California when she was 14. She is a graduate of UCLA and received her MFA from Stony Brook. Prior to writing novels, she worked as a fashion journalist in New York City and now lives in Manhattan Beach, California, with her husband, two sons, and a high-maintenance chihuahua named Lola. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Nicola. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited to have you on. And I just loved the showgirl. I love the subject matter. I love the book. I love the era. So I can't wait to talk about it.
1: Oh, thank you. I love it too. I love the whole time period. It was a lot of fun to write.
0: <laughs> I bet it was a ton of fun to write. And I have so many questions about that. But before we start that, why don't you just talk a little bit about what the book's about for those that won't have read it yet?
1: Yeah. So the showgirl follows the story of Olive Shine, who is determined to make it onto the stage as a one of the Ziegfeld Follies girls. But she's haunted by a scandalous secret in her past, and it threatens to ruin everything from her relationships with her family to her you know, success on the stage to her chance for a happy ending. So she has to decide in the end if she's willing to give up the life she loves for the man she loves in the end.
0: How did you come up with the inspiration for the story? I mean, how did you decide to write about them? How did all of that come about?
1: Well, it's funny. I actually did not set out to write a book about a Ziegfeld girl. I actually had written an article for a travel magazine about one of the great camps in the Adirondacks. And I don't know if you've ever heard of these before, but what I wrote about was this luxury hotel that you can stay at called The Point. And it's you know $2,000 a night to stay there. And it's really luxurious up in the woods. And you, know, you, you go boating and fishing and hiking during the day. And then at night, you dress to the nines for dinner like they did in the 20s, because this location was actually William Avery Rockefeller II's family compound. And it was called just one of the great camps. And then when I wrote the article, I realized that there were all these other great camps of the Adirondacks that were built by these, you know, wealthy families, like JP Morgan, people like that. And so I thought, that's fascinating. I want to know more about that. And I thought, I'm going to write a book that takes place at one of these great camps. But then as I was doing some research, I mean, I'd never been even been to the Adirondacks, so I thought, I better go. (laughs) So my husband and I went up and we stayed at one called White Pines Camp. And it's this little compound of 13 cottages, and there's a bowling alley and a lake house. And it's really not as luxurious as some of the others, but really quaint and and cute. And so I thought, okay, this is a good place to set a story. And so we took a tour with a historian. And as he's showing us around these cabins, he told us that the original owner of this particular camp was this guy and his wife had been a Ziegfeld Folly. And he said that she was a real party girl. And she used to invite all of her friends, her theater friends up to the camp in the summer and all her Bohemian. Artist and writer friends from the village, she'd invite them up and she'd have these wild parties. And she insisted that nobody should walk more than 500 feet without a cocktail in their hand. So she (laughs) insisted that she had bar cars set up on the hiking trails, you know, with a (laughs) bartender. And I just thought, wow, she sounds like a lot of fun.
0: (laughs) Can you imagine hiking where you can just get a drink anytime you want? Those don't really seem to go together exactly.
1: So she sort of took over my imagination. And I started thinking about her and how she got there and what her story was. And that just took off in my mind. And so there is, you know, a lot of this story, some of the story takes place up in the Adirondacks at one of these great camps. But the story really ended up being about her and, you know, her journey to the stage and what happens. And so tons of it takes place in New York City on Broadway. So it, it was funny how I got to that
0: point. <laughs> now, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, they go up to the Adirondacks, right?
1: They go to the Catskills.
0: Oh, okay. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The
1: same sort of feel. Same sort of feel, yeah.
0: Yes, you're right. Okay. I was thinking, oh, that's the same, but it is the same sort of feel. Yeah. Well, I love Broadway. I love Broadway shows and just all of it. So it was really fun to read about those aspects of it, the New Amsterdam Theater and just kind of that whole time period and what it was like, you know, Broadway generally, all of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah especially now, you know, no one's really been to see Broadway shows lately. So it's like, I'm sort of craving it.
0: Kind of made my heart hurt to think about that. When I was reading, I was like, oh, but we're getting there. So better that your book is coming out now. What about research? I bet your research was a ton of fun.
1: Yes, a lot of fun. So like I said, it started out up in the
0: Adirondacks.
1: And then, you know, I just read loads of books about the Ziegfeld Follies. And, you know, I found a book called The Ziegfeld Touch and it sort of tells you every single song that was sung in every single performance and it has pictures of the performances so you can see the costumes and so that was really fascinating and I mean just all oh, when you find out about their rehearsal schedule and you know they wore these crazy heavy headpieces and it was just really fun and then another book I read was The Days We Danced by Doris Eaton Travis and she was a Zigfeld folly as well and she was in her 90s when she wrote this memoir so a lot of research from books and pictures and all that kind of stuff
0: that had to be so much fun and can you imagine trying to wear one of those headdresses
1: no (laughs) i mean i'd probably fall over and the fact that they were able to perform and dance and climb this like massive staircase that was on the stage it's it's pretty amazing
0: (laughs) are there many videos left from that time period do you know I've seen some. I've seen
1: some. And then there are also, you know, recreations of other shows that sort of copied and recreated it throughout. But yeah, I've seen some.
0: Because that would be fun. I'm going to have to go look on YouTube and see what I can find. Because as I was reading, I was really wanting to envision more of it. And it sounds like there's some great books on it also. Right. Yes, definitely. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing this book?
1: It surprised me to find out as much as I did about about Ziegfeld and the Follies. I mean, I knew I had heard of it before, but I didn't really know that much about this show. And, you know, I, I found out that Ziegfeld was such a perfectionist and he was so elaborate that he spared no expense when it came to these girls and these performances. And now, you know, when we go to the, see a Broadway show, we're used to this extravagance and we know, you know, you're, you're going to see this amazing show with amazing costumes and lights and makeup and the talent is going to be out of this world usually. But back then, He wanted his dresses to be silk, you know, the finest silk, and then, you know, best crystals. (laughs) He he really went above and beyond. And also, his standards of like what he wanted in, in the talent, he had these specific measurements for these women. And he even had, and I wrote about this in the book, he even had this clear plastic sort of mask that he would hold up to the women to make sure that their face was symmetrical. It was just crazy how specific he was about what he wanted
0: I was cracking up at that I thought I wonder how he came up with that mask you know what I mean like the whole idea that they would be symmetrical and how he got the mask and and the idea that that would be a great way to do it and then also to be five five but wear a size five like that seems like a very strange proportion
1: yeah it's it's really crazy I think shoe sizes might have been a little different back then too (laughs)
0: Okay, yeah, I'm not really familiar with that part of it, but I thought, gosh, that seems like that would be a very small foot for that height. But you're right, if they were different, then it, then it wasn't really something we can exactly proportion. Right. What was the highlight of writing the book?
1: The highlight of writing this book? That's a good question. I mean, probably just getting to write about the the 1920s. I think it's my favorite time period. It's just such a glamorous, fun, wild time that I just loved immersing myself in that time. You know, I've always loved the fashion of the 20s, but also learning about how, you know, after World War One, young people just wanted to sort of break free from the traditions of their parents and the sort of Victorian ways. And, and, you know, women got the right to vote, so they were emboldened by that, and they wanted to celebrate by wearing new fashions and, you know, voicing their opinions and smoking or, you know, drinking or doing whatever they wanted. And so that was just really fun to write about women at that time. And Olive, the main character, is certainly, she considered herself a flapper, you know, who was the mo- one of the most outspoken women of the time. So um, that was just so much
0: fun to write. After we just lived through this pandemic, it's been interesting to hear people talk about the 20s and how that was a response to the Spanish flu and then World War One. Everybody kind of went into high party mode. And I'm really curious to see if the same thing's going to happen again, like when we truly are outside the pandemic, which it looks like we're not there yet. But, you know, process, hopefully we're getting there.
1: I know. It's so interesting. Um, Of course, as I was writing this book, I didn't know any of that. But I've, I've read some of those articles, you know, it was economists just saying that it's we could potentially be heading into like another roaring 20s because everyone's been so cooped up. And they haven't been, you know, going out and spending on entertainment and clothes and everything. And now people are wanting to book. Well, I don't know now, but they're thinking at least about booking vacations and spending again. And so there's this whole pent up demand. So we'll see. (laughs) see.
0: Exactly. See what these roaring 20s look like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Hopefully we'd be smarter about it this time and, you know, wouldn't end with a
0: crash. Yes, let's hope. (laughs) And also, I guess a lot of people credit Ziegfeld with some of these elaborate things that we now see on Broadway. Yes,
1: definitely. Definitely. I mean, his standards were so high. And yeah, that didn't really exist before at that level. You know, there were a lot of shows and there was vaudeville and there was, you know, other shows that you could go to. But yeah, he really raised the bar on that level of sort of perfection and luxuriousness for the shows. (laughs) I mean, he would put like cars on stage and live ostriches you got to think about what it was like then to see to see that when you had never seen anything
0: like that before. I mean, it's
1: out of this world.
0: And just the sheer number of people he had on the stage with all the opulence and everything.
1: Yeah, so fun.
0: <laughs> How long did the Ziegfeld Follies run?
1: They ran from, I believe it was 1907 to 1931.
0: And why did it stop? Because of the crash?
1: Yes, yes. He uh, ran out of money and, you know, when the crash happened, so the Broadway lights went off. And yeah, so it all sort of came to a halt.
0: Okay. You know, that's interesting. I haven't really looked at Broadway during that time period. Did everything close? Do you know?
1: I think it did for a period of time, but then they sort of, you know, tried to come back and some did and some didn't.
0: So yeah, but that's sort of what brought Ziegfeld. To a crashing ending. Yes. Well, what about the title and the cover? The cover is just stunning. I was so excited when I first saw it during the cover reveal. And then what about the title? How did both of those come about?
1: the cover I love it so much I'm so excited and I actually just got the hard copies in the mail so I'm looking at it right now I love it (laughs) um and you know they the St. Martin's my publisher they were so wonderful they showed me a a couple of ideas that they came up with but when they showed me this one I was like that's the one (laughs) can we please go with that one
0: It's just stunning. And it really is so evocative of the book.
1: Yes. Yeah, I love it. And then the showgirl, we actually struggled with the showgirl. We couldn't, we like came up, went around and around trying to come up with a title. And this is actually my editor came up with the title. And when she did, it was like, of course, I mean, it's so obvious that that's what the title should be. It took a while to get there.
0: Did you have a title initially? I didn't really. I
1: didn't. Whereas with my previous book, I knew what the title would be. But this one, I didn't. I was just, I just was writing.
0: (laughs) Well, that makes sense. And it sounds like you had started writing one story and then ended up kind of shifting to a different story.
1: Yeah. I mean, my folder that I was, you know, writing with when I was writing this book was called The Adirondacks Book (laughs) for a long time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The very original name, The Adirondacks Book. (laughs) Well, what was it like with your sophomore outing? Because this is your second book, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's my second book. I mean, there's definitely a little pressure, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, what if I can't write a second book? And when you're writing the first one, there is no pressure because I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. I was just writing for fun and thinking, oh, you know, maybe one day I could publish a book, but there's no one sort of breathing down your neck or anything. You're just writing for fun. And then with the second book, you have a deadline and, you know, there's more pressure. So I've definitely felt it, but I liked it. I mean, I I don't know if I would have finished this second book if I didn't have a deadline, because during the time that I was writing this book, I also got married and had a baby. (laughs) (laughs) The deadline kept me honest.
0: (laughs) Well, and when you have the first book, people start asking you, when's your next book coming out? You know, versus when you don't have that first book out there, your friends probably know you're writing, but everybody doesn't know that.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So, and on that note, are you working on a new book?
1: I am, yes. I'm working on a book right now. This one, I mean, who knows? Like when you write a book, as I now know, you start writing one book, it could end up being something else. But what I'm writing right now takes place in, um, in Southern California in Laguna Beach, and it's in the
0: 40s. Oh, that sounds interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I probably shouldn't say too much more in case it changes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I also, um, during COVID, I moved from New York to Manhattan Beach, California. And so I thought, you know, I mean, well, I had already decided, but I was like, I'm going to write about, you know, where I'm going to be living. <laughs>
0: Well, yes, that makes your research a little bit easier. Plus, it's fun to learn more about where you are now.
1: Yes, exactly. And I had lived, I lived in Laguna Beach right after college. So, you know, I know it. And it's, uh, so it's fun to to go back to.
0: So you had a lot going on between getting married, having a baby, writing another book, moving, and COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I certainly did. Hopefully things are settling down a little bit now. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Who is your favorite character to write in the show, Girl?
1: Definitely. Olive. She was just so much fun. She was feisty. She was determined and ambitious. And I just love that about her. I sort of embodied that a little bit when I I was (laughs) writing it. So definitely Olive. I also enjoyed writing her friend Ruthie, who had been in A Ziegfeld Girl for a little longer. So she's a little wiser to what's going on. So it was fun to sort of put them next to each other and show Olive be a bit naive and Ruthie sort of be like, come on. (laughs) And there's also an opera singer, Alberto, who she befriends. And he's Italian. And he was also a lot of fun to write, um, just as a totally different character and a totally different perspective.
0: Who was the hardest one to write? The hardest
1: one to write? Huh. I don't know. I don't know that I had a particularly hard one. Maybe the dad. Yeah, I think the dad. I sometimes would make him a little too harsh and I'd have to reel it back in. (laughs)
0: Well, and I think sometimes it's just really hard to bring somebody to life on the page.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, when you're writing, sometimes you have an idea, a person in mind. And I personally have like a great relationship with my parents. So it's hard to write parents who aren't supportive you know, when you don't have that experience yourself. So I think that was probably the hardest for me.
0: Yes. Doing something that's totally outside what you normally experience. Exactly. Well, what do you like to do when you're not reading or writing?
1: Well, I've taken up a new hobby since uh, since moving to California and since COVID, um, and that is tennis. And I had never played tennis before, but it's it's kind of fun. It's funny when when I moved here, I I was at the beach, you know, spending a lot of time outside, obviously. And there's these swings on the beach, and I was pushing my two-year-old in the swings, and I saw this girl next to me, and she was pushing her daughter, and they were talking about New York, and I said, "Oh." I I just moved from New York. And she's like, I just moved from New York. And she introduced me to a bunch of other people who had just moved here from New York. And um, so that's who all my friends are now, a bunch of uh, ex-New Yorkers. And so they played tennis. And so I started playing tennis with them. And so that's been a lot of fun. It's sort of been a a good um, COVID activity because you're outside and you're (laughs) distance.
0: Exactly. You're spread out. It's outside, but it's yes. something where you can still interact with people.
1: Yeah. I'm not very good, but I'm very enthusiastic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's such a nice sport because you can really play at any level.
1: Yes. It's fun. Yeah.
0: I grew up playing and I loved it. I don't really anymore, but it's just such a great sport.
1: Yeah. I, I'm so sort of addicted to it now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what have you read recently that you really liked?
1: So I recently read Jamie Brenner's Blush that just came out. Uh, I think it was last month. And I really enjoyed that. It's about a family winery on the North Fork of Long Island and it's got a lot of strong female characters in it, you know, who are ambitious, which I tend to like. <laughs> my first novel, Montauk, takes place on the on the South Fork of Long Island, so it was it was cool to read that. And then my current read that I'm really enjoying, actually I'm listening to it, is The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner. You know, a lot of people have been talking about and so I picked it up and uh, I'm really enjoying that. It's one of those where, you know, I sort of go for drives in the car, come up with excuses to like go to the grocery store so I can listen to it a little bit more.
0: Your family's like, where does she keep going?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I gotta get more milk.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We've run out of milk again. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love Jamie's book Blush. That was really a fun read and I love the book component to it and the 1980s timeframe, all of that.
1: Yes. yes, uh, The, uh, the characters former trashy novel book club, and they read all the books from the 80s. So that was a really fun aspect of
0: it. I thought so too. <laughs> well, Nicola, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts From a Page podcast. I love talking about the show, girl.
1: Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode and I hope you'll tune in next time.